Ben Smith, I'm a photographer, and this is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. Thanks for listening. Hey people, Ben here. This is my podcast, A Small Voice, Conversations with Photographers. You probably already know that. Thanks as always for joining me and welcome along to episode 60, which features the brilliant Julia Fullerton-Batten. Before I introduce Julia properly, the usual spiel, you can support the ongoing production of this podcast by signing up for a small monthly recurring payment of a few quid or make a larger one-off donation at bensmithphoto.com slash a small voice. Please do leave a review on iTunes if you haven't already done so. And if you happen to need a spanking new website, which some of you do, frankly, let me know and I will happily build you one using the Peerless Squarespace platform. Finally, if you're interested in photojournalism and you haven't read my latest blog post, you can check that out on the website under the notebook menu. If you think it's interesting, please do share it on Twitter and Facebook. What I've come to realise is that when you write a blog or do a podcast and you put a lot of time and thought into it and then you put that thing into the world, you want to try and make sure it finds an audience. Because otherwise you're just shouting into the void, aren't you? You're just talking to yourself. And I already do far too much of that as it is. Right, my guest this week, as I said, is Julia Fullerton-Batten. Julia is an acclaimed and exhibited fine art and commercial photographer whose body of work now encompasses 12 major projects and two photo books spanning two decades as a professional. Julia was born to a German mother and English father in Bremen, Germany, and moved to the USA at the age of two. When she was 16, after her parents' divorce, she and her siblings moved with their father to the UK, where she completed her secondary education. Subsequently, she assisted professional photographers for five years before a first commercial assignment kick-started her career in 1995. The foundation of her subsequent success was Teenage Stories, 2005, later published as a book, an evocative exploration of the transitional phase from teenage girl to womanhood. Julia admits to a pronounced semi-autobiographical influence in much of her earlier work, often falling back on recollections of her own formative and teenage years, her parents' divorce and her own early relationships. Julia's use of unusual locations, highly creative settings and street cast models, accented with cinematic lighting, are hallmarks of her distinctive style. Her most recent project, The Act, shot in 2016, is a comprehensive study of the performing and private lives of 15 women active in the UK sex industry. Her still images are enhanced by interviews with these women, captured both in video and text, and The Act was published in 2017 as a book in a limited edition of 300. Julia's won numerous awards for both her commercial and fine art work and is a Hasselblad master. She lives in London with her husband and two young sons. Here's the chat we had on a sunny day in her dining room at home, which I hope you enjoy as much as I did. So how was the Crudston thing last night? He, it's, uh, it's quite you know kind of appropriate that his thing happens to have happened. Gregory Cruston, I'm talking about for people who don't know, but I'm sure most people know who he is, but he had an, an opening at the uh, Photographer's Gallery. He, he's an obvious reference for you. Is he an obvious reference for me? Do you not think so? Massively, surely. I, I've got to say, I am influenced by him in the way that I love the way he has these huge sets. Mm. But quite interesting, the, the last um, project, the Cathedral of Pines, is much more downscaled and... Um, I'm actually going to talk tonight. I have some some questions for him. Like, do, are a lot of these things in these houses 
do they exist or is he brought in props? How much has he styled it? Is there mm. any lighting? I think there's a little bit, but it's certainly much different Don't than, worry about the, than the older work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose I just really mean that, you know, that, that, that you know, you're coming from a similar direction in the sense that it's all about being very considered and deliberately constructed and that kind of very filmic kind of a vibe. You know, it seems like, you know, you, you're in you're in a particular kind of category, which I would put him in as well. Maybe you don't feel that way, though. I do. I mean, I would describe my work as being very cinematic, um, nearly like stage sets, um, recreating scenes rather than just walking around with a camera and just snapping, grabbing. Mm. It's very set up. Uh, highly produced right exactly and sometimes That's... I can spend like a whole year producing something and shoot it in, in five days but I've spent so much time actually preparing it and working on it but that's just me in my office and doing a lot of research so that when it actually does come to the shoot it's pretty intense mm. because I've got to make sure for myself that I've I've, I've put so much energy and time into the, the pre-production pro- as it were yeah, yeah. In, in, the, in the project the pre-production, it's, 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 it's from having the idea and then doing the research and then actually thinking, okay, am I going to really shoot this now? Because once I commit to a project, it's full steam ahead and that's all I work on and concentrate on for, until I'm ready to actually shoot it. And of course, there's commission work that comes in between or yeah. I, have, I have to fly somewhere, give a talk somewhere or... And that puts it all on hold, or then maybe there's a summer holiday or something. But generally, I work tend to work yeah. pretty nonstop well, on my projects. Yeah, and you seem incredibly productive. I mean, considering the kind of scale of the shoots that you do, you know, I, I heard you you're almost apologetically kind of saying that it takes, you know, it might take a year and a half or something. I'm thinking, bloody hell, a year and a half to do something of that scale is, is amazing. You know, so, so lots of photographers who bugger about for three times that length to do something which just in- involves wandering about with a with their camera you know in a kind of documentary style so like you seem to have a bit of a you know kind of a work ethic g- going on there uh, i'm yeah i'm very f- focused <laughs> yeah. um i mean i have two children i work from home um whenever i'm not on a shoot i will try and spend as much time as i can with my kids after school um, so I collect them from school and then I come home and and I have to prepare dinner. And I'd say 90% of the time after dinner and they've gone to bed, I go back to work mm. and I keep, I, I don't just lounge around and watch TV and hang yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll read something, for example, in the River Thames because that's my next project. Or I, I'm always researching because I'm just really, just really passionate about it. Mm. And... Um, I am incredibly focused. Mm, mm. But I do feel sometimes, gosh, it's taken me a whole year to produce this. I think that's actually a really long time. Um, whereas I see photographers who are shooting all the time and um, sometimes I can get a bit frustrated how long it is actually taking me to put something together. or to. But it's a lot of it is the thought process as well. And I actually, my galleries did actually tell me to slow down, that I was actually producing too much work too quickly and there's too many Julia Fullerton Banton images out there 
that I thought, okay, I will slow down. I'll really? take my time on this and I'll enjoy this and not feel... But I do put myself under a lot of pressure to, to get it done. I get very impatient. But it's almost like they're suggesting that, you know, from their perspective as a kind of gallery, that, that you know, that, that having more work out there somehow de- devalues it. Like, you know, if you're producing small amounts, then therefore it must be so much more kind of valuable. It's, str- it's strange to kind of, you know, consider the things that they uh, think about from their kind of commercial perspective, you know, or they're from their perspective as as seeing you as an artist, you know, and to have your work kind of, uh, you know, valued, I guess. I think it's also when you when they've just promoted a body of work, which can sometimes take quite a long time, and then suddenly, oh, a new project is coming out. I think they feel that we right. haven't given enough time right, right. to the previous project, and suddenly there's this new work, and the collectors are going, okay, oh, there's some new work now, and I was just about to buy that previous something from that previous body of work and right now i can't decide and maybe something like that no that that does make a lot of sense yeah but what's really hard is um when i've shot a body of work and i feel i can't show it yet and i'm i'm gagging to just get it out there and and show it to people and but i feel i have to hold it back and that's what i'm doing now i'm shooting a project well i'm approaching this new project a little bit differently I'm not producing the whole body of work in a year and then shooting it really intensely in four or five days. I'm actually producing, shooting, producing, shooting, which seems to be taking longer. So I've already got images that have been retouched and already complete, but I haven't finished the project yet. Right. So it's a different approach. Why have you gone about it differently this time then? Well, it's because I'm shooting outdoors. It's a, um, a project recreating historical stories of the River Thames and some dating back to the 18th century some more recent stories and um, I want to show the River Thames at different seasons and also we're relying very much on the tide so I can't shoot more than one image per day Um, and just the logistics of shooting in the different areas because obviously the river is it's it's I think 260 miles long or something like that. Mm. Um, so some shots are in Wiltshire, some are along the estuary, so they're all very widely apart from one another. And it is mostly the season. Right, yeah. That determines spring. how you go about yeah. it. Yeah. I'd like to talk more about that, and I'd also like to talk about your current book, or your most recent book, book um, which is about your project, which is called The Act. But let's let's start from the beginning. So, like, you were born in Germany. Mm-hmm. Is your mum German? My mother's German and your and my dad? dad's English. Right, okay. Yeah. And, so, and you grew up partly in America. Um, I moved there when I was two. My father got a job in the States, and he also was very passionate about photography. So um, I grew up with him holding his camera, having his camera, and we weren't that far from New York, so he would go off for the day to New York and come back with all these amazing images of women running around on Fifth Avenue. Hmm. Cool. So you're another person who, who whose dad was into photography and who had a darkroom and all that. It's quite interesting to kind of collect these examples of people who had that experience. So because that, that must have had some influence. But did it uh, strike you straight away as something that interested you or did it, did it kind of come later? 
Well, I was used to having the camera in my face because he was always taking photographs of us children. Um, but it was only when I became a teenager that I suddenly thought, actually, I'd like to do this as well. I didn't know you could actually make a living from it, that it was, actually, that mm. it was a profession. Because we lived in a very rural part in Germany where you didn't see advertising posters anywhere and, um, you know, you didn't see those big billboards. And I, I was just incredibly passionate about it. And he gave me his old Minolta camera and I just started taking pictures. Mm. Um, it was only when we moved to the UK where I suddenly thought, um, what am I now going to study after my my school? And... I thought my passion is photography, so I will continue the studying in photography. And I did my A-level in photography, did a BTEC diploma. But it was only when I worked as a photographic assistant that I really got to learn yeah. a lot about working as a professional photographer. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about the assistant because you, you basically made a, uh, a decision which I think was probably quite important, which was that you weren't going to go and do a degree, that you were just going to insist, uh, you were going to assist instead. Uh, you know, w what led you to that decision? I had a very good friend um, that I studied with um, in Reading, and I was living in Oxford at the time, and he made that big move, moving to the big city, to London. And... He just, we had many conversations, what, where to go and what to do next. And he's, he, he just said, have you ever thought about assisting? And funny enough, that was the first time I actually really heard about assisting. And I thought, I thought, God, it sounds fantastic. And um, I felt that, I don't know, I didn't really want to study anymore. I just wanted to work with and learn more from photographers. Mm. You wanted to actually get stuck in and, yeah. and learn from doing it. Yeah. I mean, what I think is really interesting is the way that you went about that because you have said that, you know, I mean, you spent about five years assisting, so it's quite a decent chunk of time. But you were very sort of meticulous in the sense that you took notes, you, you know, kept the Polaroids, you really went about it in a particular way. I'm just wondering, you know, was that a very sort of conscious decision how come you did that because I don't think many people would be quite so considered I don't know why I did it I was just really keen to learn right um, and at that time also assistants weren't getting paid that well so it was very much it wasn't just a job it was very much I'm I'm learning something here and I thought I had to make notes and in those days <laughs> sounds like a long time ago um <clears throat> We used to have budgets for lighting tests. We'd spend a whole day experimenting with, and, and the client would pay for it. We'd go into a studio and we would spend a whole, I mean, we, could, we still do it now, but not as much. We'd spend a whole day lighting and experimenting for the next day's shoot. And we would do film tests and what film would experiment with um, filters soft focus filters mm -hmm. and grads and it was great it was like a it was a huge learning curve yeah really and apprenticeship i yeah i just felt i had to really record it or make a note of it um otherwise i would forget it mm. and i mean i don't actually look back on my notes at all but it forced me to sit down after every day and just 
put a stick a Polaroid in a book and make a few notes and it only took like 10 minutes yeah and, and, and make notes about the kind of lighting setups you were using and all that because obviously it stood you in great in good stead ever since I mean you, you know every, everything you've done yourself since has really been you know hugely uh, dependent on on how you light it to some extent so yeah it was almost like you, you know you couldn't have imagined how you were necessarily going to end up working but you know it, yeah, I mean, I didn't really, I don't, even now I don't have a rule of how I like to light things. Um, and it drives my assistants mad because we'll go to a set and I'll go just, let's just have a play. And I normally put lights where they shouldn't be. Like I'm not copying where the sun is coming from. I'm doing the opposite because I like that odd, cinematic, surreal look. Um, so each shoot is completely different so it's not like i'm going back to my notes and going oh i must do the lighting like so and so or like this photographer did it it's but also you've got an enormous amount of experience to draw on that that you know it's not like you're just going right well let's throw a few lights up and no you know yeah well that's a nice thing is that i can actually totally guide my assistants and say um put the pro photo on a boom with a softbox and a grid on it and angle it that way and then and then we'll shoot something and bring it up or down a stop and mm. let's put a gel on it and I, I know what I'm talking about rather than a photographer who's got no experience and go oh I like the mood give me a mood <laughs> bring me some give me some sunlight I can be much more specific yeah. about it yeah 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 but you also m- made notes about what you liked about the photographer what you didn't like about the photographer what what inspired that was that about sort of trying to figure out how you'd want to be if you were the one with the assistants kind of thing. I don't think I really made notes of how I like or don't like them. Maybe it was in my head, but I didn't actually write it down, Mm. I don't think. Well, maybe you just said that you considered that, you know, you Mm. thought about it. Well, it it was, I I think after already two years of assisting, I felt like I I knew it all. (laughs) Um, Of course, you're still learning. I mean, I'm still learning now, and I, I... I'm even learning from my assistants because don't forget they're assisting photographers who've got newer equipment and uh, learning about different light shaping and I'm like really okay and different ways of flaring the lens but um, yeah there there was a time when it just started getting very frustrating because I just thought and I think I'm a very competitive person and it would be very frustrating when they got a really beautiful brief and I felt they were just fucking it up and it could be done better yeah yeah and I kind of wanted to take over and do it for them but of course I was an assistant and I need to know my place yeah yeah but it was frustrating at times but then you went I think you had a little trip away you went to Vietnam I think and and I guess you know was that a sort of attempt to figure out what you wanted to do or what kind of photographer you wanted to be or or was it more just you know one of those kind of youthful trips abroad for the hell of it the latter mm. <laughs> um so i had already been dating this photographer kelvin who's also now my husband and he was already an established advertising photographer um shooting still very much still life and um i was like this young assistant who wasn't making a very big income and he's he was like let's go traveling and because he was a freelance photographer it, it meant that we can go off together for however long we wanted to. So we'd go off for like six, seven weeks, sometimes right. eight weeks every year around Christmas time when it was quite 
quiet with commercial work for him and me. Um, and he took the Hasselblad and film and Polaroid and a tripod and we hired a scooter. And we, we would just travel around on this scooter and just I just suddenly had this urge to take pictures and we would just stop and I'd go into a cafe and this was the first time I was really taking pictures like on a daily basis and really enjoying it and we also had a guide who could translate and we got into this habit where we would stop um, the vehicle because we had a guide and a driver we would stop the vehicle at the beginning of a village and then walk through the village because if you drive through it very slowly you're it happens you know everything you're seeing is just happening so fast yeah. so you're forcing yourself to stop and really look properly and um, I would just randomly say to my guide I think let's just this house looks interesting let's just con- let's just say hi and invite ourselves in right. Which kind of seems a bit mad, um, well, but, but we were very welcomed, and we, yeah, you know, you, you, we're unusual Westerners, and we're quite tall, and mm. they were just kind of. But also, you're doing that that classic, you know, photographer trick of just using the uh, the camera as an excuse to 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 be curious about things, really. I mean, that's part of the fun of it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we would go in, and we would chat and meet these interesting people. And then we'd say, can we take pictures? And the great thing with shooting Polaroid at the time is that we can actually physically give them a Polaroid. Mm. And um, they might have faded by now. Yeah, um, no, that's a nice but thing. They, yeah, they were quite... Because these, these were the days before people had I, iPhones, iPads, and so they were quite in awe. We'd go to very remote villages and people would be very in awe of, you know, that we're taking a picture and creating this Polaroid. So we never, we were always welcomed with opening arms. Yeah, yeah. And, but then, so your your now husband, then boyfriend, was also a jobbing photographer. So you must have, he must have taught you stuff or must, he must have been instrumental somehow in the way in which you kind of then, you know, became a photographer. Oh, very often when I'd get a brief for a advertising shoot and we're looking at a layout and it was out of my depth, I'd go, oh, wow, how am I going to shoot this? And he 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 could help guide yeah, me yeah, through yeah. it, for sure, especially when it comes to shooting still life, which, I mean, I assisted still life photographers, but I don't shoot still life that often. And it's very different than shooting people. Mm. No, no, he was really, yeah, very helpful. Even now we discuss... My projects and yeah, yeah. It's, it's great that it's something that bounce. we can. But it, it's it's strange because since we've had children, we have less time for one another. And when I ask him to sit with me and look at some editing, and I'm I'm struggling a little bit, which image to choose? You've got five minutes, <laughs> and it's <laughs> you've got five minutes of my time because now life is um, it's it's more hectic and there's less time and it's more, we're more involved with the kids and so yeah we we discuss our work less than we used to. Mm-hmm. But when you started working, I think you, you well you won some the AOP Association Photographers Awards or you were involved in that uh, early on and I think that got the attention of some people who you know ultimately you started getting jobs and I think you, your first um, job was a quite a big 
budget deal for someone who hadn't really got any experience. I think it was a hundred and twenty thousand quid budget or something, wasn't it? Which seems like quite a <laughs> You've dec- done your research. I've done a bit. <laughs> it seems like a decent sized budget even now. Yeah, yeah. Um how did you handle the pressure of that? Oh gosh, that was hard. It was uh very intense. Um and I was under a lot of pressure. Were you because scared? Yeah, totally petrified. Um, because we couldn't also process the film while we were out there. So, and you I was were doing, in where was it? Australia or something? Yeah, right. Yeah, and I was shooting a lot of cross-processed film at the time, um, and then covering it off with just shooting negative because sometimes a cross-processed film can go a bit weird. Mm. The colors can go a bit odd, and it can go very grainy. So I was just doubling up on everything, and I had all this. 120 rolls of film that when I f- was flying back, the air stewardess said, you know, to like, can I just put it somewhere? And I was holding it for 24 hours. <laughs> no way. I was holding yeah. onto this bag of film, clutching onto it. And also, you know, and going through x-ray as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you worry that moment. things are being x-rayed and trying to persuade them not to x-ray the film. And then also the film notes that are relating to... The roles of film, all this was really important. Actually, I'm, I'm really, I really welcome digital, the digital age. I really do. It makes my life so much easier. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to be said for it. I mean, yeah, in terms of those issues. For those issues, there's definitely pros and cons. Oh, but God, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, yeah. of course, there's no question that it makes no. life easier. Yeah, yeah, it does. But um, that was a bit of a baptism by fire in a way. You know, you kind of, you missed out a whole bunch of stages in a way and went straight to the kind mm. of quite intense thing but then i went back to assisting after that oh you did right yes so that was a bit weird too because i felt like i've oh i'm now a fully fledged photographer but the work wasn't exactly flooding in and i had to make an income and also i wanted to carry on working and um so i went back to assisting for maybe another eight months or something like that right yeah so your but and then your kind of first thing that you really did was the teenage girls thing was that your kind of the first personal project that you did for yourself yeah i mean i was i was already shooting um personal work when calvin and i were traveling and then also uh in the uk i was shooting personal stuff um because commissions were never i was never one of these really busy advertising photographers so i wanted to shoot I just want to take pictures so I was always shooting something but that was probably the first time I was going through therapy at the time and I felt without realizing it that I wanted to reflect back on my life and my childhood and being a teenager and moving countries and I discovered these by chance these model villages I mean people know of them but not everybody does mm. and well, I, I just I didn't realize there were so many of them I wouldn't have because you found quite a lot of different yeah. setups, as it were. Yeah. Um, but yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah, yeah. There's quite a few in Europe and also America, Canada, and um, without thinking, I want to go into the art world. I just started working on this one project, and um, I was shooting five four plate camera. My crew was very small. It was maybe two three assistants, very little lighting, and. I just went to these villages and asked for permission to shoot on these sets, which, which were very, um, ooh, I mean, very delicate sets, um, and put these girls on them and started creating this project. 
um, hmm. teenage stories. Yeah, and it was sort of a you, you ended up with a really interesting kind of you know kind of like a Gulliver's Travels kind of a, a scenario with these giant g- girls in the little um, scale model villages. People can obviously go online and find these images um, so that they know what the hell we're talking about because it's it's not uh, necessarily easy to ex- explain the the impact. But um, so you, were you sort of talking to your therapist about what this was all about and and ha- what was inspiring you know your interest in that particular subject? I wasn't actually discussing my photographic uh, this photographic shoot at all. I was just reflecting back on my life and my parents getting divorced and my mother not living with us anymore. And I kind of lost my little brother because he was with my father, but then my father moved back to Germany. So it was all very complicated. Oh, and, right. um, so you lived with your dad? We all lived. Us uh, four children all lived with my father. Oh, okay. And then... That must have been awful. So, you, so your mum was just not there suddenly kind of thing. No, she was gone. And, and we were kind of a little bit like a traditional household where the mother is at home and is the mother and the house the housewife and the cleaner and the father you don't see very often he comes home late in the evening mm. he's there at the weekends we were close to him for sure um but through the divorce we've obviously become much closer because then he became the 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 mother figure mm. but i mean i was already 17 so i wasn't right right i wasn't oh, sorry 16 i wasn't little little like my 5 year old brother who doesn't actually remember living with my mother at all mm. but, but actually probably um, a, a more difficult age in a way for you to have to deal with it than you know when you're very I mean 16 that's a t- tough time yeah. I imagine for girls especially yeah you to suddenly have something as kind of dramatic as that you know happen well you're going through puberty so you're uncomfortable well I was certainly uncomfortable about the way I looked and just the changes in my body and yeah then, the one time you need your mum to sort of yeah go through that stuff yeah. with you yeah. yeah and then the mother's not around i mean she was only in austria yeah and we were in Eng- england but for some reason we only saw her three four times a year so it was suddenly mm. it was quite extreme mm. right. and also the the, the 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 divorce was very quick it was i didn't have any idea what was going on and th- my parents sat us down and said that they were getting divorced, and in three weeks, we're moving countries. And I had three weeks to say goodbye to my friends. Yeah, amen. But saying all that, I'm very grateful that it all happened, because I would <laughs> yeah. have never met Kelvin, had the kids, and beca- I don't right. think I would have become a photographer living in Germany. I don't know why. Um, it's just we're living in such a rural part, and forcing me to come to Oxford and then London, um, and living in a city, just opened my eyes more, I mm. think. Yeah, yeah, and some of these, yeah, very difficult situations that you know it just does change the way the, the trajectory of your of your life, and 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 like you say, yeah, none of none of what subsequently happened would necessarily have happened. So mm. that's a good way of looking at it. But did you find doing those kind of you know was it quite cathartic doing that teenager project? Um, you know, did you get something out of it in that respect? Absolutely. I mean, it was quite difficult as well because I'd reflect back on the past of what life used to be like and just thinking a lot about the past so it was and also having to work out each scenario and what story I want to tell in each scenario and yeah it was it was it was difficult it wasn't easy to shoot it obviously when I'm on the shoot I'm pro- I'm just thinking about the technical details mm. but while I'm thinking up the ideas um and looking for my models it was that was yeah a lot of reflecting on the past 
what was the sort of you know what was the sim- symbolism of the of the kind of big figures in in this sort of scaled down world that they were inhabiting it was about um outgrowing your own environment and just feeling out of place and like a fish there's a shot of a girl in 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 a pond and you're feeling like a fish out of water kind of thing so yeah it's just it's also trying to approach it in a different way than i'm always trying to look for something different and trying to come up with something new rather than something that's been photographed before because teenagers have been photographed to death but it's trying to approach it from a different Mm -hmm. angle and a different look yeah yeah so you also then at some stage did a thing with mothers and daughters so again you know you're kind of almost working around the same territory and given the experience that you'd had, you know, I can see why that was a, you know, perhaps a, a quite a big, you know, subject for you. Um, but you use real mothers and daughters as your as your models. So how did that all come about? That one. Well, first of all, it was important for me to, for sure, they were reenacting my life and my stories and um, certain things that happened. But I also wanted to work with mothers and daughters because I needed them to look alike. Cause yeah, when some you, of them do look uncannily. You yeah. Know, so you can tell that straight yeah. away, you know, there's almost like a carbon copy uh, of Well, each actually, other. there's one a mother and daughter. They look so alike. They look like tw- nearly like twins. Yeah, yeah, that's probably the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you kind of think, who's the old, who, who's the mother and who's right. the daughter? Yeah. Um, and also... Um, photographing them because I wanted them to have the closeness that mothers and daughters have but at the same time also acting my life but in their their environment so it's nearly like a I don't know like a double take or Mm. something but like every project I'd go in there and I'd look at their homes and research it and what what story am I trying to tell with this specific mother and daughter in which room, what props do I need to bring in? And, um, yeah, and slowly working out the, the, the different scenarios and mm. then all the technical details come on the day. But this thing of doing these very kind of large-scale, expensive, big uh, s- um, setups, How, did that kind of, did that just evolve out of, the kind of things you wanted to explore or you know did it seem to you obvious at some point that that was how you were going to work you know with these very kind of big scenarios it's a very good question because i don't know how it really came about i think i just started i'm I'm always drawn to the really unusual cinematic photographers like jeff wall and gregory crewson and i was i was never a reportage photographer Mm. so I I wanted to create sets or create scenes in an environment that's either existing or I kind of created and I think it just gradually evolved from teenage stories where it was actually looking back on it quite simple setups Um, and actually each as each project evolves they seem to be getting bigger and bigger and more elaborate and it's not like I'm and the lighting gets more and more and more. Because I, I find that every time that I'm actually on a shoot, 
it's always one more light, one more light, one more light. Let's yeah. set up one more. And then and my assistant will go, we've run out. So now I'm like, okay, the last time I had 15 flash heads. This time I'm going to make sure I've got 20. Oh, okay, I have 20. Next time, and I ran out then, I'm going to have 25. But it just makes it, it, it I've got to say, it makes it super complicated because now and then, just before a shoot, like a big shoot that, I, that I've put together, I think... Why Why have I done this? Why have I created this big kind of set and relying on so many people when actually all I want to do is just take pictures? Yeah. And um, I look at other photographers and I nearly envy them now that they're just walking around with a camera around their neck and they're just passionate about photography and they're just taking pictures. I mean, I do take, don't get me wrong, I'm taking pictures especially of my boys. So I always have a camera with me. It's a different kind of camera, for sure. Um, it's much more grab moments. Um, and lately, unfortunately, it's been more on my iPhone because I didn't, I'm thinking, do I really need to take a camera with me? Oh, I've got my iPhone. Right. But the quality isn't as good. And, no. but it's, it's, and I'm it's, regretting that I actually just mm. only have my iPhone. But um, yeah, I, I miss, I kind of miss that just... But don't, do you think you maybe you get, have you got to a point where sort of, in a way, it's sort of like there's this kind of, you know, lighting, um, this process of kind of adding, adding, adding. It's almost like, wait, maybe just take everything away. Mm. Start, you know, is it almost like nothing, you know, one light is counteracting the other in a way. So it's almost like you're just kind of making work for yourself. <laughs> I don't know. See, I don't really understand. I mean, the, you know, the complexity of the lighting situations that you, uh, you know, get, get involved with are, are kind of a mystery to me. I think you can ha actually, what I've realized is you can have a really, when I was shooting, especially mothers and daughters, I went to one of the mother's house and it was a really dull looking house and I just thought, oh God, I'm really going to struggle with this one. How am I going to make this look interesting? And as soon as we started lighting through the window and putting a shaft of light here and flaring the lens a little bit and then lighting the mother and then the daughter, it looked amazing. And photography is all about light. Mm. And I just find, even when I'm shooting outside, like my River Thames project, I'm still bringing a lot of lighting to just to make it look a little bit more interesting for me. I mean, other people might think, God, it was beautiful before. What are you trying to, what are you doing? Yeah. So this is just my viewpoint. It's a personal It's thing totally personal. Totally subjective, yeah. And some people might not like this kind of style and um, this cinematic look, but it's something I'm just totally drawn to. And I'll test it also on their day. I'll, 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 I'll switch the flash trigger off and go, let's look at it now with no flash and just look at the daylight. And to me, it just looks dull, mm. really dull. But that doesn't mean that looking at other photographers' work, that, you know, other photographers who have shot everything with daylight is not, to me, is not dull. It's just for me, when I'm creating and shooting something and it hasn't got flashlight on it, it just doesn't, somehow I'm not, I don't, can't do it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, I think, you know, like you, you've probably said that people might tend to think a lot of it's, um, you know, post-production, Photoshop. And, and I think you said that it's not. It's, you know, it's mostly achieved uh, in, at the time in the camera. And you get, it gets this, what I kind of tend to refer to as a sort of uh, advertising, you know, this for, everyone's skin looks kind of glowing and, and shiny. Mm. And I, 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 you know, as I to say, someone who doesn't come from that, place i think yeah that must be all post um and it's amazing to me that you can make things look like that 
just by using lights. But clearly, I mean, when, yeah, when you, you can. Well, when you're using lights, it's nearly like you're painting with light. And mm. if you're putting little spots of little flash heads in certain areas to highlight a pair of shoes or someone's face or their eyes or something, um, yeah, you can. But I, it just it just needs light and the right kind of light and then it also needs a lot of time to create it that's the other thing yeah. it, it slows you right down yeah that often if i get asked to do an editorial shoot for a magazine and i'm trying to explain it'll take four or five hours to light and only then will i be ready for the person to come in and we photograph them and i need to have someone stand and it, it's like oh okay we haven't got that time mm. Well, well, yeah, I presume they don't have, if you're talking about editorial, um, they also don't have the budget for like eight assistants, <laughs> like you have a tendency to, you know, I mean, in, have you noticed a change in, in terms of, you know, what people can afford now? Um, because that's something that people talk about endlessly, you know, the way in which budgets have, have decreased, and maybe they've even decreased in, in the commercial world. What's What's been your observation? Absolutely. I mean, I was asked recently to do a shoot for an Italian magazine, Um they wanted 12 shots in one day and they had a budget of maybe a thousand pounds and a thousand pounds is quite a lot of money. I mean, I will happily do an editorial shoot as long as I get a shot from my portfolio because sometimes you can get access into great locations. Right. But budgets have certainly decreased. I mean, I think editorial budgets were always quite low. Um, you know, you get, you get your name credited and often you're half funding the shoot. And I think that's okay you know it's like a free free ad and you're getting credited sure. advertising it's kind for me it's nearly the same because i don't get asked to do advertising often when i do it's quite a big set because mm. people are coming to me with because they want that kind of look yeah so in a way it hasn't changed that much but people are questioning why do you need three four assistants but i also very often get in people who want work experience and they're lifters and shifters and they help out on the mm. shoot so mm. there's ways of doing things cheaply right. or cheaper right. so even though my sets might look really expensive there are a lot of people who also want to work with me and they're working for free sure sure so i'm not always paying everybody so mm -hmm. it's not right yeah because yeah. that would be i mean mm. you so in a way you've you kind of created you created a problem for yourself from the start with these with these big uh, shoots because you had to figure out how the hell you're going to fund your personal projects. And mm. I presume, you know, the the commercial work has funded the personal work, but also the personal work gets you attention mm. and that's what brings in the commercial work. In the yeah. So is it kind of, do you find it as a sort of symbiote, you know, there's this kind of cycle go, going on there? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a total... I mean, it's funny because Calvin was saying the other day, why don't you do some testing? I'm like... Testing. I mean, testing is normally when you're creating something for your portfolio. I said, surely my art projects, I'm testing the whole time. So, no, no, that's a project. Why don't you test? I'm like, no, that's, to me, that's just testing. Mm. Um, but they do. What's happening is that I'm shooting my projects and they're, um, they are the images that end up going into my portfolio. Um, and that kind of work is then getting me advertising work. And then also I have print sales. So yeah. people, uh, collectors are buying my prints and then I've put that back into my personal work. But um, So you're spending your own money on, on, on some really expensive projects, but 
as you say, but you know, that's like you say, that's what you're doing the commercial work for. So you can put, you can reinvest it as it were into your own stuff. Yeah. But also I guess if, if you're selling prints of the personal work, then, then in a way you are recouping your costs by doing that and maybe making a living as well at yeah. the same time. Yeah. Yeah. But not always. I mean, there's some projects that people so for some reason are just not drawn to and, and you don't sell any prints and then there are others that aren't nearly sold out. So yeah. it's it's very it's very hard to know, and I think you can't, as a fine art photographer, go into a project thinking, "Is this going to sell?" And therefore, I'll shoot that project rather than that project. I think mm. you just got to go and focus and do what you want to shoot, and then yeah, of course, it's it's great if they sell, obviously. Yeah. But do you, you know, do you feel in a way a kind of schizophrenia that you're? you know you're a fine art photographer don't think don't think anyone would argue with that but you're also a commercial photographer and i think you you talked about how galleries in the early days weren't there was a sort of snobbery about the fact that you were doing commercial work like you know you, you almost like you're not an artist you know what, what was your kind of experience of that kind of attitude well i i think that's certainly changing now yeah i was going to say the category's kind of broken down a bit it more has now. i mean people are still asking me how can you do art and commercial and mix the two and be recognized as doing both i mean the advertising clients love love it when uh photographers are shooting art projects because you're shooting personal work and and you're an artist. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Whereas um, the other way around, if you're shooting commercial work as an art photographer, it's really, it, it, it was and still is a bit frowned upon. But at the end of the day, we all have to make a living. And um, as long as you're making a living shooting photography, because I think you can still be incredibly creative with shooting advertising work. I mean, give a, a brief or a layout to 10 different photographers for an advertising shoot and you come back with... To 10 completely different looks um but there was and there is a little bit of a snobbery about it for sure how does the way in which you approach the two things differ in terms of personal work and and commercial work um i'd say they're both quite similar in a way mm. i mean i still have to obviously if it's com if it's an advertising commission it's not my idea so it's it's the creative's idea, and I have to fulfill the brief. Um, but I would still very often try and <laughs> maybe change the idea slightly, yeah. or I, I might come up with other suggestions, which sometimes is welcomed and very often not. Right. Um, or I'll do a shoot, and then at the end of the shoot, I'll do something completely different. Like, for example, I photograph someone called Tim... Andrews, have you heard of him? Yeah, I did. Tim, did you? Yeah, yeah, great yeah. guy. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. And yeah. I, 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 yeah, he did. Uh, he talked a little bit about, I think, the shoot he did with you because I, I've spoken to him a couple of times, and, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, I was very pleased to be part of that project. Um, it's it's a thing that I think a lot of my listeners will know about, but um, project called Over the Hill, um, which people can look at. But yeah, you 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 kind of and what you kind of used a set that you already uh, exactly yeah. so i i was i was um briefed by british gas to shoot a flooding set that we created and there's a couple coming into the ha into this room that's flooding and they're on their mobile phone looking at it and going ah what are we going to do now um 
And we did that. And then I thought, this is such an amazing set. We're in Annie Knight's studio. And this set costs probably £12,000. We've got water spilling into the room. And I'm thinking, what can I do with this? And I met Tim two years prior. And I always said to him, look, whenever we do a shoot, it will have to be on the back of something else. Because just to get my assistance and digital operator is going to cost me already a thousand pounds. So I've got to make sure it's on the back of something that I'm already, I'm already creating. So I rang him the night before that. I think I rang him. Yeah. The night before the shoot. And I said, Tim, I've got an idea for you. We're going to have this flooding and like your world's falling apart. And, um, and let's just get you naked on the set. Cause he's always naked. Mm. And, um, and lo and behold, he came in the next day. I had to wait until the clients left and yeah. I had to pay for his overtime in the studio. And we changed the lighting completely. We stressed the room more and and we shot him in that. And I think it's a great shot. And mm. the funny thing is that the British Gas ad never ran. Oh, really? So what a waste that yeah, would have been yeah, on quite been. an amazing set. So you really took, took advantage of having that that set and you made, mm. made the most of it and yeah like you say thank god you did because there wouldn't have been any evidence of that of that set up at all yeah, yeah that's a really nice way but did that answer your question i can't remember uh, I can't, it doesn't really matter most of my questions <laughs> I think I might have, are rubbish sorry, anyway I, julia <laughs> not at all no i i think uh, i think oh, yeah, i might have about, completely sidetracked no it was about um that wasn't your question at all it was about how you approach you know both and I, I, when I asked oh, that yeah. question I wasn't mm. convinced it was a it was a good one um, oh approaching avat- yeah so I still have to do all the production mm. like like if you're producing an advertising shoot I still have to produce my personal whereas I mean I guess when I when I'm cho- when I'm um, producing my personal work I don't have a producer so I have to do everything I'm creating right. the call sheets and choosing my team but when I do advertising commissions I'm choosing my team but then I can say to my agent or to the producer I want to work with so and so and so sort it out right 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 yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's nice really to have that luxury it's really nice yeah. it's really like when the when the ad work comes in it's like oh okay I've got just got all mm-hmm. this team about, around me and and I could just fire cylinders at everybody and go sort it out and they just sort it out and it's great yeah of course <laughs> but the other thing that kind of came out of that question was which you kind of touched upon was the idea that you know if you're being hired as a as a creative person to do something creative then why you know why would they restrict that creativity in a way you know you're partly being hired to bring your vision to the thing rather Mm. than you're not just you you know a kind of monkey who is there to press the button but Mm. I, I don't even know if there's a question at the end of all this, which is some, <laughs> sometimes that's the way it happens. But it is, but, but it is actually um, just taking that on a little bit further. It can be very frustrating getting a, an advertising commission and you don't really yeah, sometimes like it the really idea is or just, you don't believe yeah. in it and then you are purely shooting it because, you know, it's bringing in money and you're the commercial photographer. Mm, the technician. Um but as with me, as times as time has come on, now I tend to get commissioned for things that are, and that's why I don't get commissioned very often. But that it's very much my style, yeah, and then of they're coming to me now with my style, looking for my style, yeah. and therefore the commission is more in, generally more interesting. Right. I mean, they wouldn't come to me if they wanted. Um, a very reportage loose lifestyle you know there's a lot of the lifestyle around and they would just not 
no, come to no, me for that. There, it no just point. wouldn't make sense. Yeah. But I would be shooting more if I right, if right, I was right. shooting lifestyle, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. But you've created a very distinctive, you know, personal uh, aesthetic, which... You know, as I guess which is what a lot of people strive to d- strive to do. But in a way, yeah, there's a kind of double-edged sword there because that mm. means it's that or it's probably that or nothing at this stage when you've spent so long establishing that particular look. Yeah, probably is that. Or, yeah, <sighs> yeah. But then uh, I'm not comparing myself to Gregory Crutzen at all. But look at his older no, work. No, I was comparing you. I, <laughs> I'm I was not. Surprised. No, I'm not. When I, I, started, <laughs> I started out with saying he's an obvious reference and you were mm. like, no, is he? And I was thinking, oh, fuck, maybe he isn't. And then now, now it's like, yes, he is. Surely he's a big influence. Anyway, go on. But what's quite interesting, um, look at his older work, which is, you know, closing down streets and right. getting huge cherry pickers and great big fuck off. Sorry, we're allowed to lose. Mm. You're allowed to swear, yeah. It's not Radio 4. <laughs> HMIs um, on these big street scenes. And then look at his more recent work, which is much more downsized and... Um, mm. I'm going to ask him tonight how much lighting is used and how much is propped, and but it's 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 a much smaller scale. So um, what was I saying? Yeah, I guess I could downsize. <laughs> yeah, I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine yourself uh, sort of deliberately taking a very different tack? You know, having spent you know quite a lot of time uh, producing a you know quite an impressed impressive body of of work you know that that has that aesthetic can you ma- can you imagine going you know what i'm going to try something completely different no right good good answer <laughs> no okay no. Let, let's talk about this recent um project which you have produced a book of um called the act what is the subject of this project okay so these are women who live in the uk and they've they sell, they're not actually, actually they're sex workers, but they don't necessarily sell the bodies for sex, but they um, use their bodies to make a living. Um, yeah. And they are, they've chosen their own, um, this is their life's choice that they want to do this. A lot of these women are well-educated women. They've uh, got university degrees, they're very well read. They've um, they're very a lot of them very articulate in the way they speak, but they've chosen at, um, to use their bodies to make to make a living mm. in different and, yeah different a sort of quite a di- quite a diverse range of of activities within that kind of broad category of of sex work. Yeah, very diverse. I mean, we've got. Um, the ping pong girl who ping pongs things out of her her parts yeah. and then we have a, a dominatrix uh, a transsexual um who's actually dj so she doesn't quite fit in right. but i wanted to include her because she was so open about her sex change and um so she she looks like a woman and a man she still mm. has both mm. um and I loved her honesty, so I wanted to include her in that. And then porn girls and strippers. So it, it's it's trying to approach the sex industry from a women's woman's point of view, me being the female. Mm. And it's I have to be careful the way I put it because it's not really a celebration of women, but it kind of is because these women are proud of what they 
do and therefore you could say that can be celebrated at the same time I have to be careful not to say to every young girl oh look at these women this should be your career yeah, something aim. to aspire so, to exactly. necessarily yeah so it's 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 a very fine line and trying to mm. get someone to write the foreword for my book was very hard because I created I uh, sorry contacted women who are very high up there in the photography world um like directors of photography places who thought about it and then didn't want to have their names attached to it really mm because because they felt that I could possibly still be exploiting these women in one way or another or the, um, we're giving the wrong message um, or maybe these women have been glamorized so I'm getting I'm getting mixed viewpoints about the, the kind of work and I totally mm, I'm, so not, it, I'm not surprised let's put it that way I'm not yeah, surprised the way people are reacting the, to it that it's a bit of a minefield and that they just they just don't want to go there just because yeah potentially yeah you never know how it's going to be interpreted yeah and some of them a lot of them are saying they're feminists but actually a lot of these women are feminists that mm. are that are it's appearing in the books well, it so. seems a bit cowardly in a way to to not you know to not want to get also you know it's not like uh, they can't see where you're coming from and what the work is it's not like they're going into it kind of blind and just writing mm. it forth for something like that. Mm. but what you know what got you interested in the subject well, actually, I always, I, it wasn't like anything happened or anything got triggered off. And the answer is, I actually can't remember. Mm, sure. <laughs> no, no, I just suddenly thought I wanted, I want to do a project on the sex industry. I've always wanted to, but I wanted to, but it had been photographed to death. And therefore, I n never shot anything. But then I suddenly thought, well, I can approach it differently in a way of, coming from a more positive viewpoint and I didn't think it would be possible I didn't think women would come forward and it was only when I started meeting these women and inviting them to my house and spending a long time talking that I thought actually I will go ahead with this project because sometimes I have to kind of just test it a bit and meet mm. the people and just talk to people and um, it's only then I got the idea that I'm going to create these sets specifically for their lives and because mm. it felt like they're 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 on a stage set the whole time they're constantly performing they are themselves but they're performing yeah especially when they're working but when they're not working they're not performing but like when i'm working i'm not performing i'm kind of just me i'm just but they're and i thought that was quite interesting that they're it's like this performance so i um created these mini sets that I designed and um, researched all their background and created sets. For example, Flash, Sasha Flexi is a, a Russian pole dancer and she's self-trained in her parents' home environment, living room. Um, and she's put mirrors around her and have this little tape recorder so I took that idea and created, it probably doesn't look Russian, but created a, a room with interesting wallpaper and um, pat, very patterned carpet and got her to do her pose her on, on a pole that we created in this 
this living room. Mm. And did they collaborate in, in any respect in terms of deciding how what those scenarios were going to be? Or did it all come from you? Um, no, no, they did. I mean, I, I didn't go into the detail as in, is this wallpaper right? Right, um, right. But did you talk to them about, about the whole oh, yeah, idea, you know, idea from the start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It was, uh, I wanted to really research more into their lives rather than just, you know, why and how they learned and what they're doing and um, look more into their past and their background and then take mm. things from that. I mean, the way Sasha Flexi, Flexi would have got involved with that was she helped me source where to get the pole from, a pole that can be a self-standing pole that you can put into a living room. So they were involved with, you know, it wasn't just like a one-hour chat and then right, bye right. And, and then see you again when we're actually doing the shoot. It was very much a lot of contact backwards and for- mm. forwards about how I'm going to create these sets for them. And, and you, you know, you sort of had to cast them in a way. What was, the, what was your criteria for trying to cast the right people? Well, first of all, I, I, I couldn't do it myself. So I had to have two casting directors work on this. Um, and they, they, these women were amazing. One went, went, just went, she had one contact and through her one contact, she went around and found all the other contacts. Um, it was, it, the, the, the criteria was women who work in the sex industry, but I started off purely with strippers, strippers and porn girls, and then, and then it, it went further mm. to, to different kinds of you people. But you, did you not kind of need, need people who had a bit more than just that to, you know, to sort of tick your boxes, as it were, in terms of, you know, their approach to the project or their kind of understanding of what you're trying to do or you know the, or what the, the stories that they had yeah i mean like i had a dominatrix and that's something that's very different and there's very few around and also um a um escort escort yes yes mm. It was very hard to find an escort. So some, some, I mean, porn girls was easy because I had so many girls who were actually knocking on my door in the end. Yeah, of course. Um, but once I met, started meeting people, they also could suggest other people. Like I didn't, I was looking for someone, a ping pong girl, mm. and normally they're Thai and you find them in Thailand. And it was only when I was chatting to some of the girls that came to the house did I realize there was this really interesting woman in her early 40s, um, as I mentioned, called Mouse, who ping-pongs from her vagina, mm. <laughs> put it bluntly. Yeah, it's a, so, it's a very particular skill. It's yes. Not, it's not the sort of thing, you, yeah, it's, it's not the sort of thing you find a lot of people um, doing. You can't just... No. Uh, yeah. No, it's very unusual. You, you can't just go to a... To a, to a um, what do they call it? Like a, an HR, you know. Anyway, yeah, you, you can't just go to a, 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 a um, what do they call it? A fucking, uh, <laughs> ah. I don't know what you mean. I mean, I mean, I mean um, uh, you know, like uh, where do they, where do you go and like where, who are those people who um, <laughs> find personnel? You know, like uh, 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 escort like, agency? No, I like mean string the, fellows or doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. So. And also, just after talking, you know, talking to them, creating these sets, did I realize they have such interesting stories to tell that why I'm not, why don't I also make them into little mini interviews? I don't know if you've right. seen that. Yeah, I was going to ask you when that idea came about. So that was, oh my 
goodness, that was nearly a day before the shoot right. or the five-day shooting. Um, so again, it was a whole year's research and then five really intense days um, creating these sets, which were a little bit like jigsaw puzzles because to create 15 sets would have been really expensive. So we had to have... It was, it was mayhem, basically. Mm. <laughs> it was like we had one set ready um, and then uh, the second set was, no, two sets ready. But then when we had to do the third set, we had to take from the first set and take some walls, right, re-wallpaper right, right. it or paint it. And we were always running behind time. And I just did too much in one day because I did three shoots in one day. Wow. Um, and we were there from eight in the morning. To, we didn't leave till three, four in the morning. It was We totally overstretched and I totally... And then I started to shoot close-up. I I decided to shoot close-up portraits. And then as well as doing that, I thought, okay, we'll do these mini little interviews. But of course, this is all, everything's time-consuming. Of course. So we were, yeah. Yeah, you're trying to do a lot in a short time. Yeah, way, way too much. But it was, yeah, it was interesting. Uh, You know, what were the things that you were curious about um, within the, the, you know, their individual stories, um, anything that surprised you? I suppose maybe the fact that they all uh, are pretty happy doing what they're doing, or, or maybe that wasn't a surprise. I don't know, but I suppose the expectation might be uh, not that anyway. Um, I mean, they were all happy with what they were doing, but what I found out later through interviewing them that maybe two or three weren't so happy with what they were doing. Like one girl already. She was a webcam girl and she had a child and she just decided that that's not what she wanted to do anymore. So she kind of came out the other side, but she was still very happy to talk about it. Mm. But she was much more open about the pros and cons. Um, Yeah, maybe there's an element of bravado, you know, that, you know, they just feel obliged to, not obliged, but they they feel inclined to say, to, to, you know, give the impression that they're, more uh, content doing it than they actually are. Mm. Well, I was trying to. I was trying to find something deeper and meaningful. And th- there are probably a couple of girls who are so used to talking and performing that it nearly felt like they were selling themselves. Um, I won't name them. There's mm. no point. Um, and I kind of tried to dig deeper, but it was a little bit hard right, because right. obviously they know. I don't know. They, I mean, in the meanwhile, the um, Monroe was not happy about being part of the project because um, she she said she'd be happy to be in an exhibition, but I had to take her out of behind the scenes because she doesn't want to be part of the... She's not really part of the sex industry, so I had to respect that and remove her. Okay. Which one is that? She's the she's the transsexual. transsexual. Who, okay. Who's, who's a... Who's a um, yeah, because she was sort of... Yeah, that in a way, she was sort of the DJ. odd one out. Yeah, yeah totally yeah. the odd one out. So... You decided to to make a book of this project. Now, I'm wondering why this one. It, you know, there were a lot of projects you've done over the years that mm. that you could have also mm. made a book from, but you you decided that this one was was right as a book project. What what? How did that um, decision come about? Well, I have I have got one other book, which is teenage stories. Right, the old the, uh, yeah, but that's yeah. quite a long so time was, ago. It's almost like their bookend yeah. bookends <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. beginning, and yes. not that this is the end of anything. No. But, oh my god. Um, <laughs> But yeah, you did you did one early on, yeah. and you haven't done one since. So yeah, now you decided it's mm. time in a way, or that this project was the right right the right project for a book. Well, I've been wanting to get a book published for a long time, and trying to find a book publisher is quite hard. Mm. Um, I was actually approached to get a book published, so this is not a- actually a self published book. 
No, so no. I had a um, a small printing company in uh, West London contacted me. They love the work and they've got some new paper called Vivid Colour and they just thought that this would be a gr- They want to go more into the art side. And they actually approached me and asked me if I would like to get a book produced, a self-published book produced, and they will give me 300 copies. And then... I was like, oh, my God, of course. Why would I say no? Right, right. Um, and then we found um, they came forward with a designer. And this designer is also a very, very small publisher. They, I think they have maybe six books okay. called Southall and Company. And so we worked together as a team and had many meetings and slowly produced this book. But, yeah, that was not my intention to... It was more the fact, actually, you know what, saying that, the reason why I also shot the close-up portraits, because I thought having 15, if, if I ever get a book published, having 15 images is probably not enough, enough for a book. Therefore, I will add another 15 images and do close-up portraits. Um, and maybe in the back of my mind, I thought, actually, maybe there will be a book. Yeah, yeah. And then, well, it, and then it, it just happened. It seems like a whole you know, a number of different factors all kind of gelled together at mm. the same time, you know, that, that it just sort of came about because of different disparate factors. D- did you have any kind of debate in your own head about whether to make it, you know, a cheaper book and therefore more accessible to a wider audience? Because it's yeah. quite an expensive book. It's yeah. a limited edition. It's 140 quid or something. Mm-hmm. So right there, immediately, you're, you've got to have a very particular uh, mm. audience for it. Was that, a, was that a consideration at any point? Oh, gosh, absolutely. I mean, to begin with, um, I put it on my website for about £50. Really? And uh, Boss Printing came up to me, uh, contacted me straight away and said, do you realise that actually to produce this book costs £120? <laughs> really? Like you so hadn't had that conversation. Cause it, oh, because I mean, I should have had the conversation with them. You yeah, know how much right. how much is this book actually right, right. produced? Because it's it it is nearly. I mean, wa- watching these people work. I mean, it's nearly hand handcrafted. Mm. They're actually. I mean, obviously, it's printed by a machine. But when you see these guys working very slowly, or uh, they work quite fast, but producing these covers, and you can see actually, there's a lot of detail and a lot of. It's not just a quick kind of. No. no, it's a lovely book, and you can tell straight away. You know, straight away that you're getting something. You know, it's it's got a, a very sort of textured cover. It's almost leather or something. Yeah, it's kind of rubbery. Rubbery, and, and, yeah, and, rubbery. And, that's the word, not leather. And I've chosen that, so it feels like skin. Yeah. Like you're well, it's like a folio. You know, it's like it's like you might, if you might do your personal folio in mm. this way, and uh, so it, yeah, it is. And really it's funny lovely. how people react to it because they touch it and they start. T- <laughs> putting their yeah. cheek against it and they start smelling it like it's going to smell of something it's yeah. like it doesn't smell you know well you know there, you know, there's a whole thing about smelling photo books right I mean I don't know if you're aware of that but oh, um, yeah. but you know it's kind of a it's not a sexual fetish no. I don't think paper. maybe it is for some people <laughs> but there's a the whole thing about you know the smell of the ink on the paper and all that you mm. know for, for sort of photo book uh, nerds um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, each to his own. I think it's Steidl who uh, started that off. Oh, um, you know. I haven't really heard about that. I'm going to go around smelling it's, all my books yeah, now. Yeah, you should smell them because they, they do, yeah, the ink in, on the mm. paper and a different types of paper does have mm. a distinctive thing. But for a book like this, you might, it might just seem weird because obviously then there's a whole other element to it being as the, the subject matter does have some kind of uh, bearing on that. 
Oh. But I, felt, I did feel uncomfortable charging, and I do feel uncomfortable charging 140 pounds for, for a book. And therefore, I end up making, you know, try and make it one out of 300, two out of 300, make it a bit more. There's only mm-hmm. 300, and that's it. And yeah, there won't course. be any more produced. But it is, yeah, it's I mean, it's yeah. very expensive. It's an exclusive thing, but, but yeah, but, you know, it is, it is a very lovely thing. And it's got a little kind of garter. On, on it people can see I'm sure there's uh, people can have a look but yeah it's not something that that's going to be sold in you know on the high street I presume because no. yeah it's just not it's not that kind of deal but maybe that will be you know in the future you'll you'll be able to produce something which is you know can tick those boxes as it were because I guess it's nice to have a you know a wide audience mm, uh, yeah for yeah. some for certain projects I've no idea who is, who's buying them I mean I had a, a book signing at Photo London um which was very quiet. Um, and people are buying them through my website. And mm. I, I've got no idea who these people are. Well, you know, I guess you've, you know, you established yourself to an extent, extent easily that people know your work and, you know, may just be fa- fans of this, of your, mm. of your style. And yeah, I guess it's them. But they always mm. say you should know who your audience is going to be before you do a photo book. So maybe, you, you know, maybe you should have thought about that. But then, then what, you know, would that necessarily stop you from doing it? Oh, I can't think who's going to buy it. Therefore, I won't, I won't do it. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. you know, it doesn't always follow. All right, great. Um, what else? I think we've, we've done, we're done. I, it was lovely talking to you. I think we, we could have carried on loads longer. Um, I had I had lots more things we could have talked about but maybe another time Julia thank you for your time I really appreciate you doing it it's fantastic meeting you thank you really enjoyed it 